This week, a new recipe for making thin film solar cells, which in the future could rival silicon-based solar power. If you can remove the cadmium chloride from the manufacture of these modules, then the whole process becomes inherently less toxic, so it's potentially a massive cost benefit. Plus, a new way to check up on nuclear weapons without revealing their secrets, and one couple's story of research and romance. You're listening to The Nature Podcast for June the 26th, 2014. I'm Thea Cunningham. Imagine you're a nuclear weapons inspector. You've been tasked with checking whether the item inside a box in front of you is a nuclear warhead. You've been told what it is, but you can't open the box, nor are you allowed to measure the item's properties through the box walls. This is a problem faced by inspectors challenged with verifying arms control agreements. Here's John Finney from University College London in the UK. If you could actually throw whatever instrumentation you have, like a gamma ray detector or neutron radiography at a warhead which is hidden in a box, then you could actually convince yourself that that is a nuclear weapon with fairly straightforwardly. The trouble is you're not allowed to use those techniques because they can reveal to the inspector the way that that particular weapon has been designed. This is the crux. The inspector mustn't gain access to classified information that would enable him or someone else to make another weapon. But this means the arms owner can exploit the system to pass off a fake as a real warhead. With current treaties, that doesn't matter too much. Here's James Acton from the Nuclear Policy Programme at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in Washington. What inspectors are allowed to do is look inside the nose cone of a ballistic missile and count the number of warheads that are on top of it. However, they don't actually check that these objects are in fact warheads. And the reason is that if Russia wants to put a lump of rock on the top of a nuclear missile and pretend that it's a warhead, then the U.S. isn't disadvantaged. So although warhead counting goes on in current treaties, there's actually no verification to prove that an object that's declared to be a warhead is in fact a warhead. Current treaties allow warheads removed from missiles to be stored rather than destroyed. But in the future, the US and Russia may negotiate a more forceful treaty, demanding any excess warheads be destroyed. If so, arms controllers would need a slicker system that doesn't allow cheats to fake the warheads they claim to be destroying, while diverting the real thing to a secret stash. In this week's Nature, a team led by Alexander Glazer at Princeton University proposes a way of doing this. It requires the owner to create a neutron radiograph template of the warhead, which the inspector doesn't see. John Finney, who's written about the technique in Nature, explains. It's like taking, if you take a photograph, for example, and you then develop it, you get a negative of bright areas and dark areas. If you then took a photograph of the same item from the same place under the same exposure conditions and then you added the negative to the positive, then you would get essentially zero. The positives would cancel with the negatives, and negatives would cancel with the positives. And so, in effect, if you then get a constant picture, when the radiograph is taken during the inspection procedure, then you've got reasonable confidence that what you have taken the picture of is the weapon that you are told it is, even though you haven't got any data 
on which to base any attempt to understand the design of that. The method is also cleverly set up to catch any arms owners attempting to outwit inspectors. If the host tries to cheat, um, well, the host, the host would actually provide several sets of preloaded detectors with a negative of the radiograph. And then the inspector can choose one of these or choose several of these and run through the same process. And if, in fact, the weapon is not as on the template, then it will show data which itself could be proliferative. So if the host does try to cheat, then they could actually end up by giving away information they didn't want to. I think conceptually it's brilliant. So the inspector can verify a warhead is inside the box and the host can rest assured their nuclear secrets won't get out. It deters cheats and it's a wonderfully simple technique, says John. But if it's so simple, why haven't researchers dreamt it up before? I asked John. I think it's probably a problem of that the work has been done in a different field. The work hasn't been done in nuclear physics. The work hasn't been done in cryptography. And it's a very simple, logical idea. And, uh, and uh, nobody seems to have applied it to, um, to this particular problem before. As it stands, the protocol is only a computer model. And there's a lot to be done before it could be put into action. John again. You have to convince yourself that you can produce detectors which you can preload and that those preloadings will remain constant over a certain amount of time, that the lifetime of the images are sufficient for the radiograph of the new during inspection to be taken and a whole host of other possible ways around them of cheating need to be looked at. And Glazer look at some of these and they give fairly convincing statistical answers on how to get around these. According to James, there's plenty of time to develop the protocol. The US is interested in doing further arms control. Russia is not interested in doing any more arms control right now. And even if a treaty was negotiated, frankly, it would be very hard to get it approved by the Senate in the US. So the politics of arms control is very difficult right now, and there's not going to be any new arms control agreement for the next few years at least. James thinks national labs should assess Glazer's protocol further so that when politics catches up, the technology is ready and available. But the state of politics means we may be in for a long wait. For arms control to work, you have to have two leaders in each country who want to do it. And it's not clear to me that Mr Putin is ever going to want to do another arms control agreement and he could be in office for an awfully long time. And there's you know, plenty of future US, potential US presidential candidates who wouldn't be all that interested in arms control. So unfortunately, I think we could be in for a significant period of stasis in arms control. That was James Acton of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And before him, John Finney of University College London. Coming up in this week's research highlights, butterflies that use a magnetic compass and how sun-seeking might be an addiction. But first, when you think of solar power, you think of silicon. Silicon crystals generate electricity from sunlight by absorbing incoming photons and freeing up a flow of electrons. But a new breed of lightweight solar cells are providing competition. These cells, made from cadmium telluride instead of silicon, are extremely thin and could in future be printed on flexible surfaces such as plastics and foils, meaning they could be rolled out on rooftops and on the sides of buildings. 
Although they rival silicon in cost, these thin film cells make up only a fraction of the solar market. They're slightly less efficient at turning light into electricity, and making them involves expensive toxic chemicals. This week, however, British researchers announced a discovery that could cut the cost of thin film solar power. Richard Van Norden spoke to John Major of the University of Liverpool to learn more. Silicon's the classic one that everyone will know. I mean, it's on rooftops, it's in calculators, that kind of thing. But the material we're working with here is cadmium telluride, so it's a mix of cadmium and tellurium metals to give the semiconductor we're using. And basically, the advantages of this as opposed to silicon is that we can deposit cadmium telluride as a thin film. And the reason behind that is it absorbs light a lot stronger than silicon. And you've made this discovery of an even cheaper way to make cadmium telluride cells. Can you explain how that's done and what the new discovery is? Yeah, well, there's, there's a particular process that's used for all cadmium telluride solar cells. And this is something we call the activation step that uses a material called cadmium chloride. And what this does is essentially it takes a solar cell that would convert with around a 1% to 2% efficiency and by changing the electrical and materials property of the cadmium telluride, it converts this to a 15% efficient or greater solar cell. So the cadmium chloride treatment is absolutely essential. The problem comes is that the cadmium chloride is really nasty stuff. So what we're concerned about is the cadmium. Now this might seem slightly strange because obviously cadmium telluride contains cadmium as well. But cadmium telluride is what we would call a fairly stable salt. So in the same way that, say, sodium chloride isn't sodium metal that explodes in water and chlorine gas that was used in World War I, cadmium telluride isn't really cadmium. It's much more stable and it won't dissolve in water, so we don't really have any particular concerns about that. Cadmium chloride, on the other hand, is a different thing altogether. It's highly soluble in water and therefore an aqueous source of cadmium ions, which is a great concern because it's, it's a carcinogen, it's been linked to genetic defects, and if it gets into the water supply, it can be really damaging to the environment. But it's not actually in a solar cell, it's yeah, an I mean, so it's a problem at the factory and getting rid of it at the factory. Yeah, I mean, I mean, how, how, it, how it generally works is that um, in, a, in a factory situation, they, they evaporate or spray this stuff onto the um, cadmium telluride surface. Then they would heat it up to diffuse it in, and any excess that's on the surface, they then wash off with a spray. So it would be that kind of that water runoffs that's the real concern because you've got aqueous cadmium in that water so that's that's the worry so what we've done as part of our work is to say well we know the active ingredient in this isn't actually the cadmium in cadmium chloride it's the chlorine so can we look at alternative chlorides that could do the same job but without the expense and without the hazard so you came up with magnesium chloride um, can you explain how you discovered this? Did you just throw lots of different types of chlorides into the solar cell and see which one worked? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, um, what we did was we, we got the chemical catalogue out, took a selection of chlorides from that and tested them on the solar cells. So obviously the first one your mind goes to when you think of low-cost non-toxic chlorides is NaCl table salt. But what we find with that is that the sodium, when that gets into the solar cells, causes problems to the structure of the solar cells. And that means the efficiency we would expect is actually halved, so it doesn't really work as well. 
Magnesium chloride, on the other hand, we found works identically to cadmium chloride. And the thing about magnesium chloride is it's basically as low cost as sodium chloride and it's also completely non-toxic. I mean, before we started this work, I've got to confess I'd never really heard much about magnesium chloride. But when you look into it, it's already got a number of applications. So it's used to grit the roads in the winter, and it's also used as a coagulant in the production of tofu. So, I mean, you can see from those applications, there's no concern about this stuff being in any way damaging. And it costs around 1% of the cost of cadmium chloride as well. So there's massive benefits to using this stuff in comparison. Why do you think no one had discovered this before? Why was industry using the toxic and expensive cadmium chloride all the time? I mean, that's a very good question. And all I can say on that point is that cadmium chloride works brilliantly. And I think everyone's got so used to that that no one's really bothered to look for an alternative. Because it wasn't broken, nobody's bothered to fix it. Now, manufacturing facilities for solar cells are complicated places that already have lots of health and safety structures in place. So replacing one uh, toxic component with a relatively harmless component sounds good. Will it make that much difference to the cost of making the entire module? What we can say from everyone we've talked to is that this is one of the most expensive um, steps in the process. And if you can remove the cadmium chloride from the manufacture of these modules, then the whole process becomes inherently less toxic and your entire factory then needs to be less aware of the problems it could cause. So it's potentially a massive cost benefit. So do you think this is going to make these cells much cheaper than the silicon cells? I would hope so. I mean... The cadmium telluride solar cells are already on their way to becoming um, cheaper than silicon solar cells. And we hope that it's going to be process innovations such as this that could really drive that forward and get us to these kind of milestones just that little bit quicker. That was John Major chatting to Richard Van Norden. Still to come, we hear from a pair of scientists combining love and the lab. But now it's time for the research highlights, read by Charlotte Stoddart. Migratory birds use one, and it seems some butterflies do too, a magnetic compass. Monarch butterflies from the east coast of North America migrate to Mexico every autumn. They use the sun as a guide, but they still manage to fly south when it's overcast. How? Researchers put monarch butterflies in a flight simulator with an artificial magnetic field. When they shifted the magnetic field, the butterflies changed direction, indicating that they're using the magnetic field to navigate. Man-made electromagnetic noise is known to disrupt birds' magnetic compass. The researchers worry that monarch butterflies may be vulnerable too. Find that paper in Nature Communications. Sun worshippers, ever wonder why you can't resist the beach or a tanning salon, even though you know the health risks? It could be an addiction, according to a new study in mice. US-based scientists repeatedly exposed mice to ultraviolet light. The mice produced an opioid called beta-endorphin, which numbs pain and is associated with addiction. When treated with a drug that blocked beta-endorphin, the mice developed shaky paws and chattering teeth, both signs of withdrawal. The findings could explain why many humans sunseek despite being aware of the dangers, Read more in Cell.
it's not unusual to meet your partner at work. And in a feature this week, Kerry Smith writes about four science power couples who've mixed research and romance. Let's meet one couple, chemist Claudia Felser. I'm Claudia Felser, and my affiliation just now is the Max Planck Institute Chemical Physics for Solids in Dresden. And physicist Stuart Parkin. My name is Stuart Parkin, and I'm currently an IBM Fellow at the Almaden Research Center in San Jose, California. But I've just recently taken up uh, positions as a director at the Max Planck Institute for Microstructure Physics in Halle, Germany, as well as at the Martin Luther University, Halle, Wittenberg. Here they talk about how their relationship has affected their science, how they became a couple via the lounges of many Star Alliance airlines, and how they're finally moving to the same continent. When they first met at a conference, Claudia was working on a class of materials she found particularly exciting, Heusler compounds, alloys with interesting magnetic properties. It didn't go too well. The first time we met was in Amsterdam. So, and I tried to convince him to look into Heusler compounds and they're very promising for spintronic, but he was not interested at all. So I was very frustrated. This was in 2001. And then in 2008, he received a prize for Mainz. So he came to Mainz and suddenly he became much nicer. <laughs> I'm not so sure whether it's because uh, it was because of me or the Heusler compound. And he invited me uh, to California, to San Jose, and even to stay in his house while I'm there. Probably Claudia and I met uh, uh, occasionally overlapped at conferences, but uh, really um, when, when she decided to come to sabbatical, I was very happy that she decided to come and stay with me. And uh, of course, I learned a lot more about uh, Heusler compounds and how important and interesting they could potentially be. We both of us have traveled, been traveling a lot over the past several years. And so in some sense, uh, flying across from one continent to the other, I know we sort of sometimes discuss this, it's sometimes not so difficult as compared to uh, going to a meeting place within the same continent. Yeah. So I was even saying, look, since Stuart and me are more living in lounges of the Star Alliance, we should pay our tax to Star Alliance and not to a country, because I think we are more often... Uh, on a plane and in a launch than uh, in our own home countries. <laughs> we do have somewhat different approaches to doing science. And uh, I've always admired Claudia because she's very, very good, exceptionally good at collaborating and bringing people together uh, to focus on uh, problems and, and scientific issues. And then I tend to be, and she's also very, very good at dealing with lots of problems and, uh, at the same time, whereas I tend to be more focused on, on one thing at a time, I suppose. We have learned a lot from each other, but we can also fight if we have different opinions in science, I have to say. Uh, doing science is great and exploring the natural world is fantastic. But at the same time, if you could uh, also have an impact on society and take that science or that understanding, do cutting edge research, and then at the same time have an eye towards how that could be used, then in my mind that uh, makes it even more exciting and more interesting. And certainly working for a corporation like IBM, then 
one has to imagine the corporation is not funding one's research just for the pure joy of doing that research or for educational means, but it's really to understand how that those developments, those research developments might potentially impact the corporation. So I learned in this sense a lot coming from really basic science. I learned that it's not always so easy how we as a chemist think naively going there, oh, look, we have a wonderful material, so it could help to make a sensor or something, that it has to be integrated in devices, it must be stable, it must be even processable, and so on. Otherwise, I would uh, think about materials which maybe I think are useful for an application, but uh, will never make it to a product. We're designing a house together, and uh, which we're going to build over, over hopefully, in, within a year. And then uh, I'm very much looking forward to be fantastic to live with uh, together closely with Claudia in 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 Germany, in, in Halle in particular. I'm really looking forward to have a more stable life. <laughs> it's nice to sleep more than maybe 30% in your own house and your own bed. <laughs> so it will be a wonderful time, I'm sure. But I'm not sure we're going to ditch our gold cards completely. Uh, I think <laughs> that uh, Cardi and I will, will continue to do quite a lot of traveling. And I think we, we hope to, for example, form a center between uh, the Max Planck Institutes in Germany and Stanford University and Cambridge University so we can have an international uh, collaboration in, in problems that uh, we and, and our colleagues at Stanford and Cambridge think are the most exciting problems to work on. Claudia Felzer and Stuart Parkin. The music you heard was from Handel's opera Arminio, which the couple went to see just last week in Germany. Finally this week, assistant news editor Lauren Morello joins me on the line from Washington. First up, NASA is getting ready to launch its first carbon monitoring satellite. Yeah, this is a big deal. Um, NASA tried to launch a CO2 monitoring satellite in 2009 and it crashed before it reached orbit. So they've gotten the money to build a copy and they are trying again on July 1st. And what's the satellite designed to do exactly? The satellite is designed to take really precise measurements of the level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Right now scientists monitor the level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere using stations on the ground, but uh, doing it with a satellite will allow them to understand how much carbon dioxide the oceans are absorbing or decaying plant matter is um, releasing to get really specific about where the CO2 is coming from and where it's going to. And where exactly is it going to be focusing on carbon emissions and carbon uptake? Um, So the satellite will cover the whole Earth every 16 days, and the areas that scientists are most interested in include the the Amazon rainforest, the southern ocean near Antarctica, the boreal forest in North America, which is a very large forest. But they also hope to get down to a smaller level and understand, say, how much CO2 on balance is coming out of the northeastern United States, for example, which is a level of precision that they can't achieve right now. And why launch this satellite? Is the data that NASA will will retrieve from it any better from tracking stations on the ground? Well, the tracking stations on the ground give you um, a global average 
level of carbon dioxide. It doesn't tell you where that CO2 is coming from. We can do that by um, estimating emissions from things like power plants um, or estimating how much carbon dioxide a forest takes in. But this satellite offers hope that um, we can get objective measurements of those things and that will be really useful um, in understanding whether oceans and forests that absorb CO2 are becoming less efficient at doing so, which some preliminary studies have suggested. And how long is this probe set to last? So this is interesting. The probe's official design life is just two years, but NASA is optimistic that it will last longer, and so they've put enough fuel on the satellite to keep it running for 10 to 12 years. Back down to Earth, to California, um, the state which is launching a neuroscience innovation project. Yeah, so um, on June 20th, California Governor Jerry Brown approved um, $2 million for a new state-run brain research program. And that doesn't sound like a lot of money, but what California is doing is trying to piggyback on a much larger national brain research project that U.S. President Barack Obama introduced last year. How is this project then different to the Brain Initiative? It's not necessarily different. Um, A lot of the details of California's program haven't been decided yet, but California scientists and uh, California foundations are big players in the Federal Brain Initiative. Um, The Salk Institute and the Kavli Foundation, which are both headquartered in California, are private groups that are big participants in the national project. And so what the state is is trying to do is to position its scientists to, to really lead brain research in the United States. So California hasn't yet decided exactly what they're going to be focusing on? No, but what they have done is they've asked the University of California to put together um, a group of research institutions and scientists to decide how to focus their program. And are other states interested in doing the same? There are some signs that other large states might be interested in doing something like this. In New York, scientists have been talking with state lawmakers about creating a similar program, and we'll see where they go with that, but I think a lot of states are going to envy what California has done. Thanks, Lauren. For more on those stories, go to nature.com slash news. That's it for now. Tune in next week when we'll be finding out about dinosaurs that wore feathered trousers and how the First World War ushered women into science. In the meantime, check out our latest video, a fun stop-motion animation on how to hand down a sustainable future. Head to youtube.com slash nature video channel to watch. I'm Thea Cunningham. Thanks for listening. Listening.